0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century by Andreas Krieg and Jean-Marc Ricli in 2019. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Introduction A glimpse at the world in 2019 reveals an uncertain geostrategic environment. A Western hemisphere in a deep identity crisis, new powers arising in the East challenging global leadership, statehood in decay across Africa and the Middle East, transnational actors filling the voids left by states unable or unwilling to honor social contracts, rogue regimes trying to defy their imminent decay, and millions of individuals on the move to find a better future away from home. With the United Nations increasingly incapable of enforcing international law or upholding human rights against the will of its constituent member states or transnational non-state organizations, the world arguably looks more anarchical in the early 21st century than it has ever been in modern times. The perceived anarchy of the post-Cold War era, therefore, seems to be more substantial and more medieval than the realist and neo-realist anarchy of the early Westphalian system, the concert of Europe, the interbellum years, or the Cold War. The root cause of this anarchy appears to be the increasing fragility of statehood, which renders the international system more uncertain and unpredictable than it might have been in the conceptualization of Niccolò Machiavelli or Thomas Hobbes. Challenged domestically and externally by organizations operating globally and transnationally, legally and illegally, and often beyond statist regulation, the state as the predominant unit of analysis in international relations is under pressure. Nonetheless, communities, although willing to partially substitute or supplement traditional state functions with traditional, sometimes global assemblages, tend to still hold on to the state as the primary even if primus inter pares, provider of communal security. The legitimacy of the state and its institutions is still connected to its ability to bring coercive power to bear in an effort to provide security inclusively to the communities under its auspices. As such, the state still stands out as the patron entrusted with the mitigation of threat and even more so with the minimization and management of risk. To this end, the state is supposed to raise the coercive means to tackle both tangible threats and fabricated risks. Working with the military organizations and defense planners in Europe, the U.S. and the Middle East for many years, we have come to appreciate the mammoth task of trying to predict the future by interpreting the past amid a context of perfect uncertainty. Blending subjective securitization with objective analysis, that is the known unknowns with the known knowns, defense planning becomes an institutionalized attempt to prepare for potential risks in the future. Therefore, mitigating the likelihood and impact of the unknown unknowns has become more prevalent since the end of the bipolar reality in the early 1990s. In the words of Ulrich Beck, we are living in risk societies for which defense is no longer limited to building adequate coercive means to withstand military threats, but becomes an exercise of managing a range of risks of which the political risks of inaction today and irreversible harm tomorrow are often assumed to be higher than those of overreaction. For the state to maintain its standing as the primary communal protector, it has to explore innovative avenues to achieve more perceived security with fewer resources and at a lower cost of blood, possibly without any kinetic effect whatsoever. Yet, rather than concentrating on soft power alone, the state confronted with the ever increasing risks and uncertainties of transnational conflict has to have a hard power lever that can coerce those irresponsive to soft power This coercive lever of power that states use to monopolize has been subject to a fundamental evolution. Warfare is no longer just limited to the use of armed forces, but has expanded throughout the late 20th century to include alternative means of violence that generate destructive and disruptive force to achieve a strategic effect without relying on physical violence. Von Clausewitz's assertion that warfare was the act of violence intended to compel the enemy to do our will might still hold true if violence equals not only physical force but any disruptive or destructive force with a strategic effect. In the era of soft war wherein warfare moves beyond kinetics into the cyber and media domains, coercion remains at the heart of any definition of war. Therefore. Although we extensively w- look at warfare as a form of organized violence, we do include alternative means of cyber and media war that fall short of conventional forms of physical violence. Nonetheless, these alternative levers of coercive power can extensively disrupt and destroy the authority and legitimacy of state and non state actors, a primary objective of an aggressor committed to traditional warfare. Therefore, Coercion might be under more scrutiny domestically, globally, and locally than in the past. The use of violence, low-intensity as well as high-intensity, physical as well as non-physical, does not occur in a vacuum, but is subject to an omnipresent media attention that shapes the narratives on the legitimacy, morality, and success of the application of that violence. The management of print, broadcast, and social media has become a strategically vital extension of the war effort because it is where perceptions of right and wrong or victory and defeat are consolidated. While publics at home primarily demand wars to be effective in terms or sorry, efficient in terms of investing both blood and treasure, the global public is primarily concerned with ethical and moral legitimacy. Local populations affected by war want to minimize the collateral externalities put up them. Put up them by domestic and external belligerents, all of the above present present the state with a new security dilemma, having to engage in transnational conflicts overseas against intangible threats while presenting this effort as cheap, effective, and legitimate Ooh. in the Pentagon and in Whitehall, standoff warfare has become the standard answer to squaring the circle of postmodern warfare. It is a return to the ancient tradition of warfare by surrogate namely the delegation and substitution of the burden of warfare, partially or wholly, to a deputy. In an effort to minimize the exposure of one's own troops to the operational risks of war and thereby minimize the political risks for policymakers, states increasingly share and delegate these risks with proxies, auxiliaries, and technology platforms. What emerges are interwoven networks of protectors and protégés, of patrons and proxies, and of sponsors and beneficiaries. Players in this complex transnational web of conflict neither necessarily follow the old, old Sanskrit proverb of, my enemy's enemy is my friend, nor its realist derivative of, my enemy's enemy remains my enemy. Instead, as warfare departs from being exclusively reduced to organized violence, surrogate warfare becomes another tool to achieve foreign and security policy objectives, sometimes in cooperation or reliance on unlikely partners. Therefore, the partnering with surrogates on the strategic, operational, or tactical levels might not always be a part of a major combat operation. Quite the contrary, it allows states to engage in protracted conflicts and simmering, low-intensity wars that may be geographically dispersed and far removed from the direct vicinity of their borders. This book engages with the concept of surrogate warfare both historically and conceptually in consideration of the imminent socio-political transformations of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Thereby, we do not intend to narrow the book's focus on particular case studies of barbarian force multipliers in antiquity, the medieval mercenaries, or the reliance of colonial powers on indigenous forces, let alone limit the concept to the proxy wars of the Cold War era. In essence, this book looks at the strategy of externalizing the burden of warfare and the consequences it involves on the conduct of war, be they political, strategic, operational or legal. This book also also focuses on the intrinsic dilemma of surrogate warfare, which is the trade-off between substitution and control. The degree of substitution of the patron's burden of warfare correlates with an increase of surrogate autonomy and thereby the patron's loss of control. Thereby, warfare by surrogate might not necessarily be the panacea for the strategic and operational challenges of the 21st century. However, in order to be able to make an informed decision about the utility and ethical implications of surrogate warfare, the concept needs to be adequately conceptualized beyond the mere empirical analysis of historical case studies. The Concept of War by Surrogate Etymologically, the term surrogate derives from the Latin verb surrogare, meaning to elect as a substitute thereby including references to the feature of proxy, replacement, and supplement. Although too operational in its focus, a niche in the Special Operational Forces literature provides a conceptualization that grasps the semantics of surrogacy. Kelly H. Smith writes, a a surrogate, in its simplest sense, takes the place of something or someone. A surrogate is also a proxy for a particular function or set of functions. The word surrogate is not meant to be pejorative, but rather an expression that conveys substitution of one for another. Generally, it implies that the surrogate is acting on behalf of the interests of another and is in some way distinct from the source of its authority to act. Quote. In the context of warfare, the concept of surrogacy provides a broad umbrella for examining examining the patron's externalization of the strategic, operational or tactical burden of warfare partially or wholly to a delegate or substitute. The patron does so in an effort to principally minimize the burden of warfare to its taxpayers, policymakers, military personnel, and the country or organization as a whole. Both sides can be either state or non-state actors, although patrons tends to be primarily states both liberal states in the developed world and non-liberal states in the developing world. Therefore, the relationship between patron and surrogate can be intentional and unintentional. Throughout history, surrogates have been auxiliaries, mercenaries, insurgency groups, terrorist organizations, and commercial companies. More recently, states have also externalized the burden of warfare to technology platforms such as unmanned air power, robotics or cyber weapons. Cooperation, coordination, or force integration between the delegating patron and the executive delegate can be direct, indirect, or even coincidental. Thus, at the heart of this concept stands a relationship of delegation between an activator, i.e. the patron, and an executive agent, i.e. the surrogate. In this relationship, the patron intends to either substitute or supplement its military capability with means that it deems to be more economical, more effective, more clandestine, or even more ethical. As such, the concept acts as an umbrella concept for more established concepts such as proxy, compound, or remote warfare by centering on the aspect of the externalization of the burden of warfare. This idea of using surrogates to externalize the burden of war is not revolutionary in itself. Since ancient times, empires and states have entrusted auxiliaries, substitutes, and proxies, at least partially, with the execution of military functions on their behalf. As much as irregular, asymmetrical, or unconventional warfare have been a part of the norm in the history of warfare, so have surrogates. The Romans employed barbarian tribes to multiply their forces, relying on their local knowledge and relations with the local populations. The most famous example might be that of Arminius, the German chieftain who supplied the Romans with tribal support in the inaccessible terrains east of the Rhine. The wealthy Renaissance city-states of northern Italy employed the condottieri, leading military free companies offering professional armed services to protect their wealth from greedy neighbors. In the American Revolution, the British army multiplied its forces by using 35,000 Hessian mercenaries to fight the hybrid threat of Washington's Continental Army and colonial militias. The Duke of Wellington owed his success in the Peninsular War against Napoleon Bonaparte's Grand Armée to the support of the Spanish guerrillas attacking the French occupiers' lines of communication. The small, relatively small, island nation of Britain was able to rule more than a quarter of the world by relying only on colonial surrogates. Twelve political officers, 100 British soldiers, and what 800 paramilitary surrogates could control 10 million people. In the early stages of World War II, when the UK was far from ready to engage the Nazi threat directly, Winston Churchill envisaged employing continental resistance movements as surrogates to attack the Wehrmacht from the rear. During the Cold War, with the growing need for deniability, the superpowers often resorted to the use of proxies to achieve strategic objectives overseas, the Soviet support for the Viet Cong in Vietnam and the US support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan being the most famous examples. The obvious question is how the concept of surrogate warfare departs from existing concepts that deal with delegation, substitution, and supplementation in war. While the concept does not try to complement that already existing range of definitions by war by proxy, compound warfare, or remote warfare, it seeks to offer a holistic conceptual umbrella combining the various aspects of these different forms of delegation. Proxy warfare, a concept that has been lastingly defined by the literature of the Cold War, is limited to the state's strategic employment of a human surrogate and does not expand to the use of auxiliary force multipliers employed remotely to supplement ongoing operations. Some might even argue that proxy warfare is limited to a state's reliance on another state's conventional forces. Moreover, the concept of proxy warfare lacks the capacity to consider the externalization of the burden of warfare to technological surrogates. Compound warfare, however, goes beyond the narrow definition of proxy warfare, which for the most part remains a relic of the Cold War, a context within which the patron was defined as the state actor merely exploiting the strategic proxy to advance external strategic objectives in an international struggle with another external state actor. It is worth noting that the concept of cyber proxy is an attempt to move beyond the legacy of the Cold War. However, the scope of cyber proxy is solely limited to intermediary that conducts or directly contributes to an offensive action that is enabled knowingly, actively, or passively by a beneficiary. Compound warfare, which Thomas Huber defines as degrees of strategic and operational synergy between regular and irregular forces, looks at surrogacy more operationally, whereby two forces complement each other's efforts by coordinating the planning and execution of military campaigns. Here. Both parties see cooperation and coordination, even if only marginal, as mutually beneficial since these serve their strategic or operational objectives. In doing so, compound warfare, unlike proxy warfare, does not require the patron-proxy or activator-proxy relationship that by definition puts the proxy at the receiving end of a chain of command controlled by the patron or activator. In compound warfare, the regular and the irregular force operate simultaneously, although with varying degrees of direct coordination and integration, with neither side necessarily following the orders of the other. Thus, in contrast to the patron-proxy relationship, the relations between the regular and irregular fighting forces in compound warfare are more egalitarian. Nonetheless, the concept of compound warfare lacks much of the strategic connotations that are essential for the process of externalization while again falling short of accounting for new forms of technological surrogacy in the information age. The concept that comes closest to covering the complexity and diversity of surrogate warfare is the idea of remote-controlled or standoff warfare that John Moran Moran outlined in a paper for the Remote Control Project. Moran expands the contemporary debate on remote drone warfare to the building of the empire and the increased reliance of western states on remote surrogates in the 21st century. The essence of remoteness is the delegation to alternative actors or platforms that allow the patron to remotely conduct war without putting its own troops in harm's way, preferably in low-intensity and low-interest conflicts. Moran neither explicitly analyzes the process of externalization nor develops a model that comprehensively analyzes the autonomy-control relationship between patron and surrogate. Moreover, his approach might be too closely associated with the scholarly niche of drone warfare. To be more all-encompassing in the definition of remote surrogate warfare, we will keep the concept as general as possible, focusing on the aspect of the externalization of the burden of warfare. Thus, in this book, we attempt to produce a more holistic picture of how surrogacy, although a constant in human history, has been rediscovered in its full complexity in the 21st century to allow states to cope with a globalized, privatized, securitized, and mediatized context of warfare. In doing so, the concept constitutes a departure particularly from the traditional conceptualizations of warfare that have dominated the literature since the 19th century. In this book, warfare by surrogate will not just be examined on a historical continuum in reference to the narrowly framed modern concept of Trinitarian war, but also as a socio-political phenomenon in a globalized world. As Clausewitz famously noted in his magnum opus on war, quote, very few of the new manifestations in war can be ascribed to new inventions or new departures in ideas. They result mainly from the transformation of society and new social conditions. It is the reconstitution of sociopolitical complexes amid the era of globalization, exponential technological progress, and transnationalization that appears to redefine how communities interact with their political authority and, ultimately, how community and political authority approach organized violence. And route to what we define as Neo-Trinitarian war in this book, the Trinitarian state of the Westphalian era seems to have discovered the externalization of the burden of warfare as a means to survive as a primus inter pares, to remain the primary provider of communal security interests. Within a growing oligarchy over violence, both in terms of authority over and means of violence, the use of surrogates, human and technological, directly, indirectly, or coincidentally, provides the state with means to continue politics by coercive means. The argument. In this book, we are going to present surrogate warfare as a socio-political phenomenon rather than just, just another mode of war. While throughout history surrogate warfare has been driven by shortages of capacity and capability or the need for the deniability in the international arena, 21st century surrogate warfare is primarily motivated by the state's need to conduct warfare within the context of globalized, privatized, securitized, and mediatized war. The state is faced with intangible threats that are subjectively manufactured by policymakers vis-a-vis near-absolute uncertainty taking into consideration risks that emanate from an increased number of state and non-state actors operating across a transnational, multi-layered, network-centric battle space. Even small states with limited or no expeditionary capability or ambitions have to secure themselves and their communities against subtle risks that, even when originating domestically, are empowered by networks outside its borders. In essence, then, the trinity of society, state, and soldier, or of community, patron, and coercive capability, is no longer an exclusive, self-contained association. As communities develop more transnational links, sometimes to alternative patrons overseas, and security sectors are called on to conduct operations that are not exclusively concerned with communities at home, The traditional trinitarian bond that Clausewitz described in reference to the nation, the nation-state, and the national army is in a process of redefinition. Instead of merely defining these new assemblages as non-trinitarian, it seems more appropriate to call them neo-trinitarian because of the fact that the alternative structure the alternative security assemblages that develop outside the state display the same Trinitarian aspects of a community, a communal authority, and a coercive apparatus under arms. These Neo-Trinitarian assemblages can operate both in cooperation and in competition with the institutions of the state. That is, they can either help the state fulfill its Trinitarian duty to protect it or undermine it. Thus, faced with these new assemblages that engage in organized violence, the state is looking for means to engage them either constructively or coercively in an effort to remain relevant. Here, the partnership between the authority of the state with a surrogate can help the state to provide security for itself and its communities by minimizing the risks of inaction and excessive costs in terms of blood and treasure. These dynamics affect liberal superpowers in the same way as authoritarian regional powers or small states. The United States, for example, has expanded its portfolio of surrogate warfare in the past two decades from remote airpower platforms to an increased reliance on force partnering on the strategic and operational levels. Thus. President Barack Obama's doctrine of leading from behind encapsulated the growing reliance on surrogates embodied here by traditional and unconventional U.S. allies fighting to enforce or defend peripheral U.S. interests. Even President Trump's policy is characterized by U.S. disengagement of American troops in favor of an increase of burden-sharing of the United States' traditional allies as well as different surrogates on the ground. In the circumstances similar to those of the other Western powers, the political risks of both inaction and unforeseen consequences, as well as of overreaction through major combat operations, have driven U.S. policymakers to rely on surrogates to minimize the costs of wars in conflicts that in the eyes of the public must not be ignored, but do not allow for an escalation of U.S. commitment beyond a certain threshold." The US government is called on to provide increased levels of security against intangible threats that do not provide the urgency for the American public to sacrifice blood and treasure. Hence, as the case of the war of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS in Syria and Iraq demonstrates, the US government is asked to contain risks in these localities that could potentially develop into direct threats to the US but are not conceived perceived as such by the public in an effort To stabilize these conflicts against locally based transnational actors, thereby arguably providing positive externalities primarily to local communities rather than to the American people, the US cannot expose its own military personnel to high operational risks or invest too many resources on a major combat operation, particularly not when the US has to simultaneously contain the risks to European security in Ukraine or the risks of major escalation on the Korean peninsula. Consequently, air power and local rebel groups provide the U.S. with the hard power lever they require to keep involved in these simmering conflicts. The punitive airstrikes in response to the Bashar al-Assad's regime use of chemical weapons in Syria by a coalition of the United States, the United Kingdom and France in April of 2018 are a case in point. After having continuously drawn lines in the sand, new governments in Washington and Paris drove a more assertive agenda, whereby inaction in the face of chemical weapons use could no longer stand without losing any remaining lever of deterrence for the future. At the same time, the West could not afford getting drawn into a complex civil war that was arguably already dominated by Iran, Russia, and Turkey. Most importantly, the West could not bear the political costs of military personnel being exposed to the operational risks of sophisticated air defense systems. The solution, the operation to uphold the international norm prohibiting the use of chemical weapons, was solely conducted by standoff weapons fired a safe distance from the target areas. What emerges is a neo-Trinitarian assemblage between the US government, local forces, and technological platforms providing security not primarily as an American public good, but more as a regional, transnational good. Similarly, the technological surrogate tends to replace US boots on the ground, as contingent sizes are increasingly becoming smaller. These dynamics are not unique to liberal western states. President Vladimir Putin's Russia increasingly relies on serving or retired Russian soldiers employed as contractors by private military and security companies, PMSCs, owned by businessmen close to the Kremlin. Providing combat services, these contractors have become powerful, powerful force multipliers for Putin, augmenting Russian troop levels in wars that are unpopular on the home front, such as the war in Syria. In 2016, images surfaced, suggesting that contractors working for Russian PMSC's Wagner and the Slavonic Corps had embedded with pro-regime militias across the Syrian battle space. Contractors were photographed in full battle gear, and dozens were reportedly killed on the front line, implying that Russian contractors were directly involved in combat. In fact, as indicated by an episode in February 2018 in which U.S.-supported rebels killed several hundred Russian contractors, these surrogates seem to allow Putin to outsource casualties to the market, something that becomes of interest as the Russian public appears to become increasingly sensitive to casualties in what it considers to be a war of choice. The assemblage between the Russian state and non-state actors generates discrete expeditionary capability to achieve disruption overseas at limited human and political costs. In Nigeria, an emerging power in West Africa suffering from structural insecurities, security assemblages look essentially different as the external and internal push and pull factors differ entirely from states in the developed world. This country divided along religious and ethnic fault lines and governed by exclusive neo-patrimonial elites, has witnessed an extensive activity of non-state contenders challenging the authority of the central government. Militias in the Niger Delta and the jihadist militant group Boko Haram in the Northeast represent the most prominent local insurgencies, while the government is trying to address making use of commercial and non-commercial surrogates. Lacking the capacity and the capability, As well as the legitimacy in the eyes of local communities, the Nigerian state has invested in security assemblages with maritime security companies, private military companies, and rebel groups. Here, the state partners with surrogates that supplement the state's capabilities and legitimacy to provide public security to communities that have withdrawn their support for the central government. In an effort to retain relevance within a complex, multi-layered conflict over authority, legitimacy, and access to resources, the ruling elites have discovered that the partial delegation of the burden of warfare of counterinsurgency or coin and counterpiracy to surrogates provides the state with a degree of public authority as a manager of a neo-Trinitarian security complex. Instead of undermining the standing of the state, it brings the state back into the picture despite the fact that the management of violence is partially outsourced to surrogates. In essence, surrogate warfare transforms the socio-political concept of security that has evolved in the late 18th century from a Trinitarian into a Neo-Trinitarian complex. Rather than characterizing this complex as non-Trinitarian as Martin Van Crevel does in his Transformations of War, the new, tru- the new Neo-Trinitarian assemblage are hybrid socio-political associations between communities, states, and a range of new security providers, new technologies, and norms. In that way, they retain a resemblance of the fundamental tripolar divide between a patron as an agent of a community delegating security provision through organized violence to a security provider. We argue in this book that externalizing the burden of warfare from the Trinitarian complex to surrogates on the outside allows states to continue providing security as an increasingly abstract global good, In transnational complex against actors disregarding the sovereignty and territoriality of states. By keeping the financial, human, and ultimately political costs for states in war to a minimum, enabling states to operate within a realm of public discretion and international deniability, the neo-Trinitarian security assemblages between patron and surrogate offer the state ways and means to deal with the risks of 21st century conflict. However, without the covenantal bond between the authority strategically directing organized violence and the agent executing the violence, the patron-surrogate relationship bears inherent risks that are alien to the Trinitarian security assemblages that had come close to monopolizing the means over violence in the Western world in the 19th century. Unlike conventional civil-military relations between society, state, and citizen-soldier, the relationship between patron and surrogate is often one of a temporary nature. Command and control becomes a fluid concept when surrogates rapidly or readily advance into conflict with varying degrees of autonomy. The aspect of delegation, supplementation, or substitution intrinsically entails degrees of deputation, whereby the deputy is entrusted to achieve tasks autonomously with limited or no patron oversight. This loss of patron control affects both the effectiveness and ethics of surrogate war, as this book intends to show. Thus, although at first appearing to provide the state with an almost silver bullet for its 21st century challenges, the externalization of the burden of warfare to surrogates leads to fundamental issues in the way violence is being used in the century ahead. As much as it might be a response to what Hedley Bull might call a neo-medieval anarchy, it might also contribute to the unpredictability, uncertainty, unmanageability, and proliferation of postmodern conflict. Book Outline Chapter 1 introduces the reader to the phenomenon of surrogate warfare historically, from antiquity to the postmodern era. As the chapter illustrates, the externalization of the burden of warfare has been a constant in warfare since pre-Westphalian times. The chapter commences by providing an overview of the various forms of surrogacy that have emerged through history, from simple auxiliaries in ancient times to mercenaries to rebel groups and unmanned aerial vehicles. Further, this chapter uh, categorizes patron-surrogate relationships based on the proximity of the principal to the agent, ranging from direct to indirect to coincidental surrogacy. In chapter two, we outline the geostrategic context in which surrogate warfare needs to be understood. In globalized, privatized, securitized, and mediatized world, modern concepts of state-centric security provision are being challenged. Therefore, this chapter lays the contextual foundation for understanding the future of security provision in what we define as an increasingly apolar world, where no state can exert unchallenged influence across all dimensions of power and where the perception of security might no longer be defined by tangible threats but subjective perceptions of risks. The changing character of of war will be examined here against the backdrop of Clausewitz's Trinitarian concept of war. It will be argued that wars in the 21st century do not easily fit into the 19th century Trinitarian concept, which has to be perceived against the particular socio-cultural and historic backdrop of the klaus Fitz era. The surrogate wars of the new era are becoming increasingly neo-Trinitarian, with alternative security assemblages arising that provide security as private or global goods, with the state's former monopolist role in war being reduced to one of a primus inter pares. A conceptual framework for surrogate warfare is developed in chapter 3. Providing a detailed examination of the model of warfare by surrogate, this chapter presents the externalization of the burden of warfare as a typical neo-Trinitarian war, whereby the Trinitarian relationships between society, state, and security agent are being disrupted, allowing the patron to return to pre-modern mode of war, the rational cabinet war removed from the passions of the people. Thereby, surrogate warfare provides the contemporary state with a solution to the dilemma of having to coercively manage risks but without relying on major combat operations." As this chapter shows, surrogate warfare allows the state to respond permanently and geographically dispersedly while widely avoiding international, domestic, or local scrutiny. The fourth chapter focuses on the role of technology as a surrogate in contemporary and future warfare. It starts by providing an outlook of the role of technology in warfare from a mere force multiplier to a standalone autonomous platform Drones are the first concrete and visible systematic manifestation of the use of technology as a surrogate. The cyber domain, however, represents a domain of warfare that is particularly appropriate for the use of surrogates as this chapter will show in reference to Russian activities in this domain. The next generation of weapons relying on artificial intelligence will have a degree of autonomy unseen before. The implications of these technological developments on the trinitarian nature of warfare have been under-researched because of their infant nature. Yet it is essential to analyze this type of technological surrogacy in an effort to appreciate warfare in the 21st century, as after two centuries of state centrism, autonomous weapon systems might fundamentally alter the way states wage war in the future. Chapter 5 focuses on the consequences of the trade-off between control and autonomy. This trade-off is key to understanding surrogate warfare as different push-and-pull factors, making patrons seek maximum control over the, sur- over the surrogate by dissociating themselves as much as possible from the surrogate through high degrees of substitution. The surrogate, however, seeks to maintain autonomy from the patron while ensuring a constant level of external support. These push-and-pull factors determine the volatile nature of the relationship between patron and surrogate as principal and agent. Degrees of substitution and consequently surrogate autonomy or patron control are dynamic as relationships evolve from dependency to codependency. This chapter will therefore examine the whole range of surrogate relationships and providing a taxonomy ranging from indirect delegation over force multiplication to full-out substitution looking not only at human surrogates but also technological surrogates. In doing so, this chapter evaluates the costs and risks of surrogate warfare linked to principal agent theory, an angle that has been widely neglected by the literature thus far. Chapter 6 sheds light on the phenomenon from an ethical point of view, applying principles of just war theory to the externalization of the burden of warfare. From a jus ad bellum point of view, this chapter discusses how the resort to warfare by surrogate conforms to both the normative and philosophical debates about just war. The delegation of authority to external surrogates has an impact on the patron's reasonable chance of success, potentially its right motive and intent, the proportionality of effort, and the criterion of right authority, as well as the question of whether force is really being employed as an act of last resort. The second part of the chapter looks at surrogate warfare from a juice and bello angle to highlight the moral implications of the use of surrogates in complex operational environments. The key focus in the second part of the chapter is on the patron's legal and moral responsibility for the surrogate's action. The loss of patron control over ever more autonomous human, and technological surrogates does not necessarily exempt the patron from the duty to ensure that surrogates operate ethically and in conformity with international law, a duty that has become increasingly difficult for patrons to fulfill, as examples show. Chapter 7 brings the various analytical debates together, applying them to the case study of Iranian surrogate warfare since 1979, As this chapter shows, unlike any other state, Iran has mastered surrogate warfare domestically and externally in counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and strategic defense. This chapter demonstrates how the regime in Tehran has come to embrace asymmetrical warfare by surrogate as its standard modus operandi of strategic defense. A particular focus will be directed toward the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, and its Quds Force as the prime vehicle of Iranian surrogate warfare in the Middle East. In contrast to Western Foreign Intelligence Services, or SOF, Iran not only externalizes the burden of war in an effort to disguise its activities, but has relied on surrogates as an effective tool to secure Iranian interests overseas." While the United States' Central Intelligence Agency and the UK's Military Intelligence Section 6 might employ surrogates covertly on smaller projects of often more peripheral interest, surrogate warfare for Iran has been an integral part of strategic deterrence and defense.